Some rounds, birdies can be hard to come by. Fortunately for us all, some don't require that solid iron game to be found. Welcome to Bird Watchers, an expression of our eternal devotion to all things bird. This episode's going to be a fun one. We travel to Jeb's hometown to spend some time with Don and Ann Butler, who we've talked about in previous episodes. They are two of his mentors growing up. Don and Ann focus on the conservation of pheasants and other rare bird species, and their dedication and expertise was incredible to witness. Today, we start the podcast sharing the story of how they became lovebirds. We first met, we uh, got invited to an, an NC State East Carolina football game through some mutual friends who in Raleigh, so we went to the ball game, had a good time, and then... Went our separate ways. Went our separate ways. <laughs> <laughs> and that was, that was a, I think that was the, the, the game that ended the series for a few years because uh, we must have seen 50, 50 fist fights, both inside and outside the stadium. Before and, and after the game. <laughs> in the parking lot. So, uh, so seven years went by, and then I moved to Clinton, Ann was living here, and some friends of our mutual friends uh, told me that well, we've got this gal that you we think would be perfect for you. We want you to meet her. And I said, Nah, I I'm really averse to blind dates, so I'd I'd rather just do my own shopping. Thank you. So a few weeks went by, and they came back to me and said, uh, Well, we think you're making a mistake if you don't. Good, you know, if you don't see this girl. By the way, she says she's dated you. I said, that's impossible. I don't even know anybody in Clinton. I certainly never dated anybody from Clinton. And then they said, uh, well, she said that you went with some other folks and her to an East Carolina NC State football game. And I, right then I knew who it was. And I said, well, I got, surely I can't go see her now. I'd lose face. I'd be too embarrassed to call her up, you know, if I didn't even remember her name when they mentioned it. So uh, a few days went by and I decided, well, I may as well eat crow and call her up. And I happened to have had a couple of uh, concert tickets to see the Moody Blues and their North Carolina Symphony. So I called her up and uh, do you remember me? She said, oh yeah, I know who you are. (laughs) About like that. Uh, so uh, she she agreed to go, and then it it worked that time. So after that, we uh, dated for about what year and a half, two year years, and, a half, and two got years. married. And so we've been married since 1995. And part of the deal was when he asked me to marry him, he said, "Now you realize if you marry me, you're gonna marry birds too." I'm like, mm, I can handle a couple of birds in the yard, maybe. And so. Um, we had a couple of dog pens, and I thought that was going to be it, just two pens of birds, but bird fever's deadly. <laughs> we had a pair of goldens and a pair of tragopans, and uh, that was a great start, and it's just, gosh, it's grown tremendously since then, and keeps, it continues to grow. 
and I enjoy it as much as he does. And when I started out, really didn't know a lot about birds. I couldn't tell the difference between a goose and a duck. Uh, but now I've become a very, very good bird person. The first time I was really hooked was when Don took me home with him for the first time to meet his parents there uh, at their farm. And his father had, I bet, 30 species of pheasants. And just to, to walk down that old chicken house and see all of those birds and all of those colors was the most magnificent thing I'd ever seen in my life. And then I, then I was hooked. <laughs> I can attest to the same thing going there for the first time and seeing and just being absolutely floored by the, I guess, somewhat of a juxtaposition of the birds to the, to the surroundings, but also the same care that we see here to the manicure, you know, the pins being manicured. And you just see a bunch of happy birds and you see a bunch of people who are just fascinated with them. I can remember that so distinctly. It being one of my first memories going anywhere with you, Mr. Don, on a Saturday morning to Bladen County. It was a long time ago. It was, you were 12 years old at the time, I believe. You were, because that was the summer that you applied to be a volunteer at the hospital, and I interviewed you, and I said, tell me about yourself. And one of the things you said was, I love raptors. And I'm thinking, this kid knows what a raptor is. <laughs> He's pretty special. And that's when I told you about Don and what we did. And, that and we learned we were neighbors. And we learned we were neighbors, and that was the beginning of a long, long friendship. Backstory there, as Miss Ann said, I was a 12-year-old volunteering at the local, the Sampson Regional Medical Center here. Um, and yeah, through the course of that interview, I came to find my second parents. Um, they also put me in touch that same summer with the folks at Sylvan Heights Bird Park, uh, where I spent every summer for the next six years interning. Uh, and that all began as a 12-year-old some 14 years ago. Now we get to come back, we get to interview these lovely people, and we get to hear from, from real experts on birds. And both of us are still involved with Sylvan Heights. In fact, we were up there Saturday. Sylvan Heights is, uh, is the international uh, center for uh, wild waterfowl, and there's, there are more species of wild waterfowl on exhibit there than anywhere else in the world and it's open to the public. And um, you can, it has a website, just, just uh, look for Sylvan Heights Bird Park. It's in Scotland Neck, North Carolina. And it is the experience of a lifetime to go and see it. So typically when people go once, uh, they'll keep coming back. But we're, we're glad that you guys came to visit with us to look at our operation here today. It's scale-wise, nothing like Sylvan Heights. We have 22, I think it's 22 species of rare pheasants here, and probably something around 100 birds total. Sylvan Heights is, is also the home of the International Wild Waterfowl Association, which is the, the primary group that identifies situations around the world where birds are disappearing through habitat loss or other, other issues, and they try to figure out, okay, what, what's wrong with this situation? Is it possible to correct the problem on the ground and, and breed the birds in captivity for reintroduction, which they've done in a number of cases, like the uh, uh, white-headed duck from, from Spain was down to 
16 birds, I think it was, and they only bred at this one lake somewhere in Spain. And uh, they captured all 16 of those birds and put them in a, a breeding situation, learned how, to, learned how to breed them. At the same time, they figured out why they, their habitat was around this lake and the farmers around there had destroyed the, the fringes, the vegetation that led up to the lake, and they only nested in in plant plants and bushes around the edge of the lake. So, when they were when they restored that habitat and had enough birds that they felt comfortable with reintroduction, they put them back, and now there's a self-sustaining population of several thousand. So, there's one example of how. You know, a handful of people uh, who know what they're doing can get involved with a species and prevent uh, it from going extinct. Well, on that topic, how have you had so much success with with your breeding? Well, we've always had breeding success, but for many years, um, I kept birds exclusively in in pairs, uh, thinking that. Having more than two male, more than one male, or more than one female, with uh, with a, with a mate, and I've seen a lot of fights break out if you had multiple birds in a, in the same pen. But uh, with some species, I've discovered that you can uh, keep them in groups, and that was a breakthrough with Edwards pheasants, which is a is critically endangered if not extinct. We think they're extinct in the wild. They haven't been seen in the, in the wild since 1980. I had kept them in pairs for years and typically one hen might lay four to six eggs in a season and maybe some of those would be fertile and maybe some of those would hatch and maybe some of those would live. So it was a really slow process building up the population. But I decided I was gonna try a radical experiment and put a group of Edwards pheasants together. So I put four males and I think five or six females together in the off season, not in breeding season, just to observe their behavior and to see if they were gonna fight each other. And they, they did not. So when breeding season came, they, uh, they lit it up. I mean, we had close to 80 eggs from, from that pen that year and raised approximately close to 50 birds. And that's probably equal to all the other Edwards in captivity worldwide. And now those Edwards breeders, those offspring have been distributed to about 20 zoos in America. And the zoos are now breeding the Edwards. And there's also people in Europe who have some captive Edwards and the World Pheasant Association is working on a long-term reintroduction program for the Edwards. Uh, another thing that we have done, I think, that has contributed to our breeding success and our raising success is that we went to an intense incubation class several years ago, uh, and the person who taught the class was responsible for helping reintroduce the the condor to uh, the western part of the country and she we were the only non-zoo people in the class which was kind of amazing 
but we had to watch the development of an egg from day one to day 21 when the chick would hatch. And by the end of class, we were supposed to be able to look through, look at an egg through um, a light and be able to tell exactly what day of development that chick or that embryo was. And it was really, it was really fascinating. It taught us about our incubation room, about sanitation and certain practices that we needed to embrace to improve our breeding success or our hatching success, I should say. How would you describe the overall importance of pheasants and birds in general? Well, the, the family of pheasants is probably the most important uh, family of, of birds in, in the bird world. Not, not many people are aware of the fact that uh, all of the poultry in the world, these are chickens and uh, birds that have been bred for human consumption throughout uh, you know, our history, uh, are all derivative uh, of the green jungle fowl from India, which is a member of the pheasant family. So technically, or genetically, all chickens, their ancestor was a pheasant. So therefore, that's why I make the claim that uh, the pheasant family was the most important uh, bird species on the planet for mankind because they've, they continue to feed the world. But the pure original uh, strain of pheasants, uh, they have never reproduced in, in the numbers that commercial chickens do. That's something that genetic manipulation by humans has developed all different species, all the different breeds of chickens, and they're bred for different purposes. Some are bred for egg laying, some are raised for meat, some are, some are raised for show. But uh, the pure pheasant species, they're seasonal layers. They only lay in the spring or summer. They don't lay a lot of eggs, and they don't reproduce in big numbers, and that's why they, they're disappearing in the wild. Habitat loss is, is the primary driver for uh, you know, the reduction in numbers. Of course, the pheasants are so beautiful, and their, their plumage is such that throughout history, People have, uh, have taken them for their feathers, for ornamentation. Back in the United States in around the 20s and 30s, it was a big deal. All, you know, women dressing up, everybody was wearing a hat with a few feathers in it. Well, that was not, that was not a good thing for the pheasants because that's where, where a lot of feathers came from. Pheasant feathers continue to be used, although you know, not as many, thankfully, but uh, they're taken for food by people who live in their native ranges. Uh, but the primary uh, threat to them is, is habitat loss. Pheasants have uh, a varied dietary needs. There are some that live in tropical uh, jungle-type areas close to streams, typically, and they feed. Uh, they have a high-protein diet made up of insects and snails and crayfish and things like that. But they also they're omnivores. They'll, they'll eat seeds and plants and uh, nuts and berries. But um, most of the pheasants, well, all of the pheasants here have the same staple diet, which is a pelleted ration that's made for pheasants and has a certain amount of protein and, and other uh, minerals and 
and uh, vitamins and minerals that they need. But uh, some of the pheasants here uh, like green, like to eat green plants, so they'll eat grass or you know they'll eat buds off of uh, bushes and other things. But they'll also eat they will eat insects and they'll eat uh, earthworms, which we don't like for them to do because earthworms carry disease. Most of them will eat fruit, chopped up fruit, which we give them as treats, dried nuts and berries. Uh, all of them love watermelon. I mean, they, they'll eat the seeds first, then they'll clean up. You can put a half a watermelon out there today and, and this afternoon, there won't be any red part left because they, they love watermelon. I've never seen a, a bird of any kind that didn't like watermelon. One, what is what parts of the world can pheasant be found in? And two, uh, what is the history of ringneck pheasants in America? And why is it that I know some of our listeners in the Midwest have come across? I think you could probably tell us a little bit about that history. Sure. First of all, there are no pheasant species that are native to North America or South America. The uh, ringneck pheasants that are prevalent in the Midwest and hunted for sport, there's, there's millions of them, they're not threatened. Uh, they were originally brought in from China. It's a Chinese ringneck uh, pheasant. But the uh, pheasant family uh, is primarily from the Asian continent. They range from as far north as the Himalayas and uh, Tibet down through China. Uh, there are several species uh, from Japan, uh, some from North, North Vietnam. Through the, uh, the mountains of uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan, all the way down the, down the uh, uh, western uh, part of the continent, all the way down to the uh, islands of Malaysia, Borneo, and Indonesia. But there are none from, there's one species of pheasant from Africa. Nobody knows how it got there. The, the Congo peacock, which is a member of the pheasant family. Probably the oldest bird I have here is a Bornean uh, crested fireback pheasant. The or originally, I mean, that species' uh, origin is in, is in Bor the jungles of Borneo. Many years ago, a pair of, of wild-caught Bornean uh, crested firebacks that was sent to me by uh, uh, one of the zoos in the country for breeding purposes. And I have an offspring from the original wild-caught birds here and I, I like him because he's beautiful, but he's getting old and arthritic. But he has a unique personality he always has. He's mean, uh, or at least he wants you to think he's mean. Tell us his name. Uh, his name is Billy Badass. And, uh, you know, if, if you're around him very long, you'll find out why he has that name. But early on, he would attack me when I would go in the pens. And it's not fun to be attacked by a bird that has two-inch spurs on his legs. So um, we came to an understanding. I don't like to be spurred, and he doesn't like to be hosed down with the water hose. So now, he, when I go into the pen, he'll take off in the other direction. But if anybody else goes in the pen, he'll jump on them. Yeah, I think Luke and I got to experience that now. I don't know that he recognized me, or I don't know that I always showed the same... Uh, I don't think he associates me with the water hose as much, but it, yeah, it's interesting how you can walk through the the aviary and all of the birds around are shying away from us, except for this one, which is actively trying to get through the fence to us. And I think it's like a testament to 
the diversity of, of attitude, the diversity of um, personality that a, a place like this can have amongst birds, even from within one species. How you pointed out one of the other uh, Bornean firebacks um, being such a, the complete opposite in mannerisms, how he's a much more gentle bird, a little bit more shy. And then his, his cousin right up the road is, is yeah, actively it, trying to harm. In, individual birds have individual personalities in the same way that people do. How about um, outside of the aviaries? What kinds of birds do you notice hanging around? Do you ever know? I know that you've had problems in the past with birds of prey picking off ducks. Um, I know you've had wild ducks come through. Tell us a little bit about the birds you notice hanging around your captive birds. Well, we have, uh, we're fortunate to have several acres of land where our home is, and we have two ponds on the property. So we, over the years, we've had quite a few varieties of uh, waterfowl, some wild birds coming and uh, hanging around like uh, hooded mergansers come every year. They're seasonal, they're migratory birds. Uh, uh, North American wood ducks uh, live here. We put up a bunch of uh, nest boxes on our property, I think we have 17 or 18 nest boxes. So the wild bir birds will come every spring, beginning in late February, and they will they will nest in those boxes. Uh, and each box each year produces, you know, two and sometimes three different clutches of babies. I mean, one group will she will lay 12 to 20 eggs hatch that group she'll take off of them somebody another bird will come lay another clutch of eggs raise them they'll leave and so i've seen boxes used three times in a year so every year there are hundreds of uh beautiful uh, north american wood ducks that are that are born here and if they're born here they tend to come back to find some place to 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 nest uh we have uh birds of prey we have red-tailed hawks who every year nest, you know, in, in a big pine tree down on the lower pond. We've had uh, Cooper's hawks. We've had, uh, uh, you know, any any variety. I don't know all the uh, raptor species as good as Jeb does. I mean, he's, Jeb is a is bird of prey expert, not me. Uh, and then we've had a lot of, uh, you know, different types of songbirds. Uh, we had bird feeders up, so we love to sit at our window where we have our meals and over the course of a year we might see 50 different species of, of migratory and and native songbirds that would come and you know eat from our feeders so it's uh there's always something going on out there and on our pond now we have probably about 15 or 20 ducks that uh came from sylvan heights and uh uh, we have three different species of whistling ducks. We have uh, uh, Old World comb duck, which is one of the rarest ducks in the world. They're from Africa. Uh, we have other birds from South America and, and Europe. So we have a lot of different, we have diversity in the waterfowl, but they're, uh, they're loose on the pond. They uh, come and go as they please. Well, Mr. Don, um, how long, can you tell us a little bit, how long is it you've been working with birds? I had the first pheasants in 1985, so ever since then. 30 years worth. Yeah, 30, over 30 years. Yeah, 35 years worth. And so going forward, how do you hope to see 
one, your own work in conservation with birds evolve, and two, the overall conservation of birds evolve? Well, I'm, I have mixed feelings about it. It, it. First of all, I consider it to be very important work because if, if people don't get involved and work with some of these birds that are on the brink of extinction, then, then for sure they'll go extinct. Um, but the good news is that there's more and more awareness of the plight of endangered species, not just birds, but, you know, mammals and, and you know, every, every kind of animal you can think of. In fact, uh, I have a friend who is a National Geographic photographer who's doing a really important project now called the Photo Arc. And his mission is to photograph every wild animal species in captivity before he dies. And to date, he has photographed, I think, about 12,000 species, and he thinks he's a little over halfway toward his goal. And he thinks it'll take the rest of his life to, to, to get the rest of them because he's already picked all the low-hanging fruit. But uh, he's been here to photograph birds, and, and the, the story and, and the driver behind his project is to, is to raise awareness with people, millions of people around the world, about the fact that unless something changes, we're on a trajectory to lose half of all the wild species in the world uh, within the next hundred years. Now think about that. Yeah, the implications, I think. Uh, and this, the National Geographic photographer, this is Joel Sartori you're speaking of? Joel Sartori, yes. For those of you at home listening, we, at the Birdwatchers podcast, highly recommend checking out Joel's work uh, with PhotoArc. And yeah, featured on the cover of National Geographic, uh, all the way from Clinton, North Carolina, I think, uh, is a testament to Don's work and a testament to Joel's dedication to, to getting all of these birds, the links he's going to to photograph. Uh, Mr. Don tells us a story about Joel traveling to the middle of India to photograph the one known uh, Western tragopan, is it? The Western tragopan, uh, there's only one known to be in captivity. Uh, and Don found it and Joel went to photograph it. And it's work like that that I think is drawing attention to what we all need to be doing to address the issues uh, related to bird conservation and to getting this awareness out. I think something that's often lost in the conversation, or at least that's lost maybe on the general understanding from the public, is how much work goes into what you do. Well, it varies. You know, uh, the busiest time of year, uh, starting in late February, early March, is going into breeding season. So uh, we we collect Christmas trees that people have discarded after Christmas, and we put those in the pens uh, in, under the shelter, and that provides a place for these birds to, to nest. A, a lot of them like to get behind a tree or a bush and, and, and hollow out a little scrape in the ground, and that's where they lay their eggs. Others choose to, to lay in an elevated nest box, so we have to make sure that we have good places for them to nest but then there's taking care of their overall health. We four times a year we um, uh, we put a dewormer in their water that's to clear out any internal parasites that could uh, you know would would make them sick. Uh, then you know we collect eggs there as they're laid. 
we, uh, we mark each egg so that we know which birds it came from, what day it was laid, and what day it was put in the incubator. And we use an, an electric incubator to incubate the eggs uh, until they hatch. It's usually 21 to 25 days incubation period. Then after the babies hatch, uh, they, they require special care and attention until they're big enough to, to be released back into the, onto the ground in the pens. And that's several months of a pretty intense oversight that we had with the little ones. Then there's, there's routine day-to-day -day stuff like making, you know, feeding them, changing the water, very important that they have fresh, clean water at all times. And then uh, general housekeeping. I mean, we we were out raking, cleaning up bird pens while you were, guys were driving here today. We wanted it to, to look good for you. And so we rake out the pens, uh, you know, fairly frequently so that their sanitation is never an issue. But to answer your question, no two days are alike, Jeb. What about for our listeners at home who are looking to promote more natural, healthy ecosystems in their own backyard? What are some things that you might would recommend to so they can see these birds come to their own backyard and have thriving ecosystems? Yeah, that, I'm glad you asked that question, Jeb, because you know people listening in might think, well, gosh, I could, I, I would never want to be involved in, to that extent. You know, there's expense and time and labor and, and expertise and all that. Well, you don't have to have the kind of things that we have here to make a difference. But you can do things at home, even you know, if, even if you live in an urban environment, there are plenty of things that you can do that will make a difference for uh, for birds. Um, it's it, most people have some place where they could put up a bird feeder, even if you live in a condo or an apartment. Uh, you you know, typically you have some place where you could hang one outside or in the yard, if you have a yard. Uh, but if you have have an area of landscaping around around your property, around your home. Uh, you can uh, you can look for plants that uh, that birds can use for nesting, uh, that birds uh, feed on things like holly trees. Birds love holly berries, you know the bright red berries. There are many different types of plants that produce food for birds and. Uh, one one way to, to learn about that is just go online. How do I how do I attract birds to my home? And you can find thousands of different kinds of bird feeders, you know, online or at, at lots of stores. You can go to Walmart or uh, Tractor Supply or someplace like that and find bird feeds. You can find feeders, uh, different things that would help attract birds, but. Uh, it's a fascinating hobby. You'll, you'll enjoy watching these beautiful creatures and you'll be making a difference. And I think that's what we're all after here. Uh, ultimately, uh, the point of the podcast and the point of bird watchers in general is to promote supporting our feathered friends. Uh, we definitely aren't asking everybody to be actively and especially as actively as you involved in the conservation of, but we hope to continue to point you all to individuals like Mr. Don and Miss Ann who have been doing the hard work for years so that the rest of us can enjoy these beautiful creatures and for everyone listening uh, please make a note go visit sylvan heights in scotland neck north carolina you can see things there you can't see anywhere else in the world uh, become a member there help support their work and you would be making a big impact by doing so
we support that message. Sylvan Heights is unlike anything I know we've touched on. I've worked there uh, throughout the summers of my youth. Uh, Mike and Allie Lubbock, make sure to ask for them if they're around. Uh, tell them that you're friends of the Bird Watchers podcast, and they will they will spend some time with you explaining. Uh, it is fantastic. Uh, highly recommended. Jeb and I have, we always say golf courses are the best place to bird watch. So wanted to get your thoughts around that uh, when it comes to tree removal, what that ends up doing to a habitat. The removal of some tree species would have different impacts than other species. Uh, the regular pine tree, the native North Carolina pine tree, they're, they're beautiful and, and uh, you know, I hate to see any tree come down, but um, that wouldn't have a huge impact on, on most birds because, uh, you know, pine trees produce cones which have seeds, and it's primarily feed for squirrels. But uh, things like oak trees, uh, man, I really hate to see oak trees come down because they, they provide acorns and uh, habitat for, for nesting both in, in cavity nesters and birds that build nests on, out on their limbs. But, um, you know, I, I really, I, 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 lo I love to see beautiful golf courses, but I love to see beautiful golf courses where the designer and the builder are sensitive to uh, main maintaining as many trees as they can and still designing and building a course that people, people can, can enjoy. But I, they're not mutually exclusive. Uh, if I were building a golf course, I sure as hell wouldn't go out and and make a desert first and then come back and plant a two-foot tree because you'll never see a magnificent tree while you're alive from a two-foot seedling. I mean, it takes time. And, you know, 100-year-old oak trees and maple trees, it's, I think it's a sin to take them down. So it sounds to me like ultimately what you're saying is for people to do a little research of their own of the birds that are endemic to the to the area in which they live. Obviously, there's no one size fits all for all bird species. I I can't I don't I have no idea how many species we have here in North America. But uh, as you go from locale to locale, even from county to county in North Carolina, you come across different unique species that need different unique environments to thrive. Like Lonnie Pool is a good example of a golf course that takes it pretty seriously. Right. We're LEED certified. Um, uh, Lonnie Pool is an animal sanctuary, so think we don't even allow fishing in the ponds. Um, we have an osprey that has been hanging out year-round, although I don't think he nests on the golf course because I've never seen a nest, uh, and I've only ever seen the one bird. Um, but there is an osprey that, that he's the only one that's allowed to fish those ponds. And I think I've counted... 29 or 28 species of bird on the golf course at Lonnie. Um, we have several raptor species, including the osprey, red tails, red shoulders. Uh, I think there's a family of Cooper's hawks, although I don't see them as often. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Lonnie Pool is a great example of entirely native landscaped and entirely focused on minimalizing impact, be it through water usage or impacting the flora and the fauna. Uh, yeah, we, we do take that pretty seriously. And, and you can and notice, you know, out of the what is it, uh, 75 or 80 acres that the golf course sits on, um, three quarters of it is, is unmaintenanced, unmown. Um, and that, you know, not only for the birds, but for all species, we have a family of, 
I think I've counted as many as 23 deer at one time together. Uh, I've seen wild turkey recently, which was a first. Uh, so I think that, you know, when you when you place a golf course like Lonnie Pool in the context of being on NC State's Centennial Campus, in the context of basically downtown Raleigh, and then you walk out there and it is the most beautiful piece of property in Raleigh, which is largely due to the fact that it's mainly left native it's tree-lined, uh, native, the, the uh, fescue, which I get to walk through all the time, um, get lost in it. Uh, yeah, and it, and it shows because of just through observation, you can tell how much of an impact it's having because you'll see more wildlife on that 80 acres than you'll see in the entire surrounding county. It's, it's, it's incredibly important that golf courses and design architects take those things into consideration, um, which, to be fair, I think that in the modern golf course architect, we're seeing more and more of places like Dormy Club, which you feel like you are in the middle of nowhere at that course, and there is nothing that is mown that is not a fairway. So it, it's it's incredible, and, and it's the same thing. Uh, my friend that works there talks about you know people hunt on the on the property. It's a huge piece of property. Uh, the wildlife going on out there is is insane, um, and I think it stands out. Those courses to me stand out as as what golf should be, as what golf course architecture should be. It's incorporating. The nature, incorporating the ecology, incorporating all of these things which we love and are vital to our existence with golf, which we also love and is vital to our existence. <laughs> Finding this, this inner relationship between the two should be paramount for all of us uh, as we continue forward on our collective journeys towards uh, a more sustainable future, a more enjoyable future, a more beautiful future. Well, I, I want to thank you guys for coming and, and visiting with us today I've enjoyed I've enjoyed uh, showing you around I've enjoyed our conversation here and uh, I hope you'll come back if, uh, and, and bring your friends if, if they'd like to come uh, we're not open to the public uh, but if anyone wants to come and look by calling ahead in, uh, we, we try to accommodate people who are interested but um, thank you for for the for your passion about what you're doing uh, you know I had a hard time before today figuring out how do you how do you link golf and birds, but you've done a good job of explaining that to me. So, thank you for that. I used to play golf quite a bit, but uh, I haven't picked up a club in probably four years. I'm recovering from a knee operation right now, so it'd be a little tough for me. But I'd like to get back out and have a go at it. I might take Jeb on and show him show him a few pointers. You think you've had more birdies on a golf course than uh, actual birdies? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll, I'll stick to keeping these birdies here. Do you have more questions for Don, Luke, or I about the birds, about his work here? You can reach out to us uh, via our Instagram, via the website, email. You all know how to get in touch with us. Uh, we would love to field any more questions for you. And I, I know Don loves to take out time to, to educate others on what it is he does. Um, so please feel free to. Uh, we would love to share a little a little bigger slice of this piece of heaven with you. Yeah, thanks for listening, everybody, to this episode of Bird Watchers. If you ever have any birds you want us to cover, definitely hit us up and keep on spreading the good feeling that golf is home.